you know, it's it's funny. Every time I want to make a, a reference, like a Woody Allen reference, now I just like, mm, I, I, mm, mm, yeah, mm, yeah. Mm. I know it's terrible. I mean, that's that's a hard thing for Jewish boys, Jewish men of our age, right? Because Woody Allen was so formative in our childhood and our adolescence. I mean, so formative in terms of our comedy and our humor and our language and so much. But this is, I mean, this is an interesting point. But, you know, let, let, go ahead. Can I just Sorry. can I just finish the thing that yeah, I want to say? Finish your point, sure. It doesn't mean that some of the things that he's written aren't you know well written no of course um, not uh, but uh, the, i think the thing i'm thinking of is that the the shit, is it is it is it something max von Sydow said in in, in no no in like, hannah and her sisters maybe or something like oh. that where he said like if jesus came back and saw what was being done in his name you know he would pew. <laughs> yeah. something like that you know well that's for sure yeah I mean, it's an interesting question in terms of, you know, I still, even though I have a lot of problems and uh, I'm uncomfortable on some level saying what I'm about to say, I mean, I want to say it, I, I still think of myself essentially as an artist. And I think, I think it was Twyla Tharp who said we're all artists. Locks in the Bagel is a production of Kenjamin Media, a curated series of conversations about things that matter. For more information about our podcast, please go to KenjaminMedia.com. And obviously, you've been an artist in the classic sense. You were an actor, a professional actor. But I mean, this idea of uh, this is such a fascinating topic and, and such, a, I think, a meaningful topic for what I just described in terms of this, this language of cancel culture and this language of all this other stuff. What does it mean to like an artist who then you learn has had politics that can be abhorrent or have, has made statements that you weren't aware of until today, you know, like a Woody Allen, like. How do we how do we grapple with that? Like I, I'm grappling with that. I mean, I think you are too in the Woody Allen thing, because Woody Allen again. I, I want to say this for Jewish boys especially. He was so formative, very formative. I I am struggling with that, um, and I especially with with Woody Allen, and not just as a as a young Jewish boy, right. but as a as an artist. Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, this is someone who shaped my ideas uh, about what's funny who shaped my my creative leanings uh whose whose work was influential in all kinds of uh, ways to me um and and was yeah. just just immensely entertaining to me yeah um, me too you know and i sort of feel like i i don't think i can watch his stuff the same way anymore uh, and and that's and that's crushing to me me too but it's also true, right? Yeah. Like that has changed the way I see like, like, and also by the way, Manhattan, the film Manhattan, which is about him having a relationship with a young girl, right? Uh, Margo, was it Margot Hemingway? Uh -huh. Mariel yeah. Hemingway is one of the Hemingways. Uh, yeah, Mariel Hemingway. That movie when I was 18 and 20 seemed funny and, 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 and you know, esoteric in some ways but now that movie seems creepy to me well it, i want to speak to that a little bit and, yeah, and, and this is the that that particular movie and i was just talking to jen about this it's so it's so sad it's so unfortunate because if that movie's intention was to set out to examine and and and, and um, deconstruct this idea of well, these arbitrary lines we make with age mm -hmm. 17 right. and a half 17 and three quarters 18 sure. 18 in a day you know and talk about the the uh the nature of love, the nature of affection, mm -hmm. the nature of social constructs. And, you know, that would be one thing. 
Right. I don't think that is what he was trying to do. One of the things that was beautiful and remains beautiful about that movie, right? If you take out a couple of scenes from that movie, namely the scene where he and all of his friends are sitting around and nobody is talking about the fact that she's 17 right? and like, this is kind of weird. Mm-hmm. Right, that everybody just kind of condones it. No thinking, uh, mature adult in that picture ever says anything to him about it. Right. If you take that out, for example, and you just watch this movie, and you also take, if you were to take out what you know about him, right? It's a, it's a quite a beautiful picture about about two people who are involved in this relationship and the struggle they have, including the struggle they have with their age difference, right? Right. But, th- but he wasn't setting out to do that. He wasn't setting out to, un- to deconstruct these ideas. And if you take his work in Toto and you see like, oh, this is creepy. There's this undercurrent of, through many, many of his right. pictures and his writing and his unpublished stuff that's sitting in a, a library and I can't remember what university now, mm-hmm. right? Um, then you know it's creepy and it's too bad because now you you can't really talk about this film artistically anymore in the in the way that i think it deserves to get talked about that's the point i wanted to get at is this notion of can you can you or should you separate the artist from their humanity is that possible i mean it was more let me say this it was more possible obviously in the days before social media and before we knew anything about people and so maybe in the 50s and 60s 70s and even into the 80s and early 90s maybe that was possible because we just there was no we didn't know these things there was rumor but we didn't know things even i mean you can put that even in the context of like franklin roosevelt was in a wheelchair for his whole presidency most americans weren't aware of it this is a true thing um, but in the age we live in today, because that's where we are, right? These are our lives. In the age we live in today and our children, where they are in their lives, I don't think it's possible anymore. And I'm not sure we should. This is the point I want to address and I want you to speak to. I'm not sure we should separate it anymore. I mean, I'm not sure we should accept that. Oh, well, he was a Nazi, but God, he was a hell of a painter. You know, I mean, because that's what essentially we're saying. And I, I don't think I can't. There are a lot of Mel Gibson. I can't. Since the whole stuff about his treatment of Jews and his views on Jews came out years ago, I have not watched a Mel Gibson film because I cannot watch the film without thinking of that thing. And sadly, I can't watch Woody Allen anymore either. I, I mean, I spent decades, uh, you know, loving, worshiping at the altar of Woody Allen's work, his language, his comedy. I can't watch it anymore because I can't separate it. And that's just a reality. What's your? What do you think? Well, I have the same. I have the same or similar experience. Certainly can't do that. With I refuse to put any money into Mel Gibson's pocket. That that's also that's also a political statement on my part. Yeah, no I don't. Question. I don't want anybody to ever hire him. And right. so, by my not spending any time or money uh, on his work, I'm I'm hoping that people will say well, it's not worth hiring this guy because. Nobody wants to go see his stuff anymore. Right. Um, Except in every part of the world where anti-Semitism is pretty popular. Right. He's still pretty popular, sadly. Right. Yeah. I still, I still admired Ricky Gervais's balls when he was at the, on the uh, <laughs> hosting the Golden Globe. And he said something like, um, he was talking about Mel Gibson and he said something to the effect of like, no, you know, I mean, I, I, it would, it, 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 you know, he's had, a, he's, he's, he's had, a, he's had a hard time. Not as hard as the Jews. 
right. Ah, the balls on that guy for yeah. saying I mean, that. Yeah, I mean that guy is all balls. Uh, Maybe too many balls, but all balls. Yeah, not you know, like on the ball scale, like not as yeah. big as Sasha Baron Cohen's balls, but pretty, yeah, although, but, but pretty big. But pretty close, big. different. I would say different and close. I mean, different sometimes balls. Sasha Baron Cohen's work I can't watch. That's I mean, not. We're not talking about that. We're just talking about the biggest balls. Yeah. Are. yeah. I know his balls are huge, um, but I, I sometimes his work I just find offensive, like too offensive. Like Ricky Gervais's comedy can be offensive, but their words and the visuals of Sasha Barrett Cohen's work sometimes I just have to avert my eyes. But anyway, go back to what you were saying. Yeah, but the, but on the ball scale, I mean, they are on the upper. Big balls. They are on the. They are both on yeah. the upper end. Of the, of yeah, they're the, in the uh, VIP room of the ball club. They are on the. They are in the C suite. They are in the C suite. <laughs> well said. Of of the uh, of big ball ball big, corp big ball big ball ink big ball ink I like yeah. it <laughs> put that on your tombstone chapter twenty three big, big ball big ink. ball ink um, so you know I don't know I I really really struggle with it because I do think because I do think there are some there are certain works of art mm-hmm. you know, I, I, look I, I, Picasso I, I yeah I, that's I was thinking of that too Go you on. know to my mind arguably the greatest artist of the 20th century greatest mm-hmm. artist working in a in a, a physical visual medium mm-hmm. you know by all accounts pretty big misogynist yeah as, as were you know a, a very high percentage of men i would suggest from that era right yeah uh, I mean, that, that was the norm yeah you know it doesn't make him not a great artist it might mean I don't want to live. I don't want to own one of his works. Yeah, this is not this, like this could, brings up. But it, this but, brings up a question. Yeah, go on. I don't know. I'm trying to speak. So I'm trying to speak to your point. Yeah. You know, is Woody Allen? Does his do his politics and and his um, personal misbehavior make him a less good artist? Ugh. I mean, that's that's tough. I I think not. That's my knee jerk response. I don't think it makes him a less good artist or a less brilliant artist, but I think it makes viewing his art uh, more more problematic. Yeah, I guess it depends. I mean, yes, what you said is obviously true, but also even to the first point though, I guess it depends on on how we're defining an artist right are we defining i mean and this is a question are we defining great art by simply what the work looks like outside of the context of the artist when you go to a museum for instance and you see we talked about this a few weeks ago on the podcast when you go to florence and you see the david Mm -hmm. and you 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 walk around this mammoth gargantuan stunning piece of art do you think about the artist at all and if the artist had been a slave owner, a known, you know, a known slave owner who abused people and raped women. Would we then think of the artist? Would we look at that piece of art and say, yeah, it's good, but mm, no. I mean, I, I think these are legitimate and reasonable questions, especially in the world we live in now. We grow, and it, I say this all the time, right? We grow and we evolve as a culture and as a people. So maybe when we were in the 70s and we were little, we had a different view on this, but thank God we're human and we evolve. And so we've changed our views on a lot of things. And so is this an area where we need to be changing our views because it supports values that we find meaningful? I mean, the Picasso thing, I, I just want to make one other question. I want to lay out one other question for you and then let you respond. The other thing that came to mind what you were saying is because we live in 2021, is it easier for us to look at works of art from 
60, 70, 200, 300 years ago and not connect the human piece to it? So are we less invested in a Picasso's misogyny than we are in a Woody Allen's, whatever you want to call abuse? Like, because we're more connected to it and, and it feels resonant. And so that's part A. Part B, is it easier in a in a art, in, in a medium that is purely visual, like painting, as opposed to something that's more interactive, like film? Do we do we have more of, again, a, clo- a personal relationship with a film because there are people and there's talking and there's something we relate to more than an abst- something that's, you know, separate from us, like a piece of uh, like a painting or a sculpture. I, I wonder if there's a distinction there. Cause I, I kind of feel there's a question to ask there. Go ahead. Respond to that. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I don't think we possibly have time to, to, to this is such a complicated issue. I don't yeah. think we have. Okay. Wait, before you, let me just say this again. We're doing a show. I, I understand. So I know we don't have time, but you I'm, still I, answer I, the question. I'm going to, I'm going to try my best to dress some <laughs> of this stuff. Thank you. <sighs> you know, the, Hey, <laughs> <laughs> The, uh, the big flourish. Yeah. Obviously context always matters. Part so like part of what makes some works great or important work right. is the context is in which they were created, right? Exactly. So you look at it now and you go like, eh, doesn't do much for me. You go like, but yeah, but nobody had ever seen anything like this before. So for right. example, uh something that I think about all the time is like uh Charlie Parker, listening to Charlie Parker. When you mm-hmm. listen to, to to a Charlie Parker album now, you don't think you know, I mean, they're still great recordings. They're still right. great. Uh, he's clearly a great saxophone. But right. it sounds cool is, now. Yeah. But, you know, you identify that as like, that's jazz, right? Right. Um, that's cool. But, you know, you don't remember, you don't think about often, like at the time he was making that music, nobody had ever done that before. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, there's a great story about Art Pepper, uh, who's on stage playing and he gets he gets heckled by um a guy who goes you're just you're just playing like charlie parker (laughs) you know and to which Mm -hmm. our pepper said like you come up here and try playing like charlie parker (laughs) that's great you know so that's great like even then it's like it was just a just a given that like oh well that's just what you know but but no but in the at that time Mm -hmm. nobody had ever heard that nobody nobody ever heard anybody do that before um so, so, you know, that's important to remember, you know, uh, uh, um, uh, what's the, 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 um, famous art historian, uh, E.H. Gombrich, right. Talks about the beholder share, you know, in artwork is 50% me and what I bring to it. That's the, right. that's the beholder share of the piece. The, mm-hmm. the, the artist is only responsible for 50% of it. Um, you know, if it makes you feel something, it's, it's done its job. If you, you know, basically whatever right. that, I mean, it, it comes with its own mythology. Once, once the work has been finished, you know, if I'm bringing in, so the reason I'm bringing up this piece, this, this context piece though, in terms of like Charlie Parker, you know, you also, it, it, similarly, you can say, okay, but let's also think about not only the time in which it was created and why it matters, why we still listen to this and why it's, you know, we think of it as great and important, but then if you bring in like, Oh, well, let's also talk about Charlie Parker's life or let's talk about Woody Allen's life. But I, I think that's a pretty slippery slope when you are evaluating the art as art. Uh, if there, if, and let's just say for the purpose of this conversation, there's such a thing as art. We accept that there's such a thing as art and that it means something to people. 
Okay, wait, let me let me stop you there for a second because I want to pick up on something you said. So this 50%, 50% thing is interesting because this suggests to me a relationship between the viewer and the art, the creator, the artist, okay? So uh, if well, the, it's no, a relationship between the viewer and the art. Well, no, but you, yeah, but what is, okay, but what is the art? Is The art then is the person who created it or the person who created it is part of the art. This yeah. is, wait, let me, let me make the point though, because this relationship to me suggests again, an evolution of the way we view these things. And, and because we have a lot more information now than we used to have, I, I think that the relationship between the viewer and the artist has evolved just like the rest of our culture. So I think we're at a time now where the the level of information we have does affect the the art itself, does affect our ability to be in relationship with the art. And I think it, it's impossible. It's like unringing a bell. I think it's impossible at this point in time where we are as a culture, as a people, to separate the art from the artist in a way that... in in a way that's that says oh i can look at this art even though i know the guy who painted it was a nazi or i can look at this movie even though i know the guy who painted it you know raped people or abused his kids i don't think that's possible anymore so i again i think it's like unringing a bell i think we've moved past that idea so this idea that art is is outside of the context i just think that's a that's fantasy now that no longer exists that's my take on it i think it's i think it's i think it's very well said I think that if you have a relationship with the art, you also have a relationship with the artist. Yeah. And because of the nature of mm -hmm. the current level of the relationship, I don't think you can separate things. I think you could when we were younger. I think we you could before the the level of knowledge we have about people, the social media, all the 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 voices speaking out about any human. I think you could do that before. I don't think you can anymore. So I, I think that genie's out of the bottle. Yeah, I I think you're right. And I think you know, so you could say, I don't want to, I don't want to view this art because I don't want to have a relationship with that artist. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, that's absolutely. Um, and I, I think, I do think on some level, perhaps. Can, can, I, get, is can I get one word in here? No. Oh my God. No, I'm still talking because, because when I was editing last week's show, all you did was talk over me. So I thought like this week, my turn. All right. <laughs> Wait, let me just make this last point and then I'll let you talk. I think that the not level of knowledge we have in, can enhance our relationship to the art in a way it didn't, we didn't have the opportunity to before. But I also think, you know, something is obviously lost, but I think what is lost is outweighed by what is gained. Um, that's just my take on it. Go. <laughs> go. Go means go. <laughs> go. Go still means go. Oh, okay. You know, this, I'm going to bring up a point which is obvious and I think you know, begs to be brought up, which is, okay, everything you're saying is true. Okay. Where do you go then? Are you, then are we holding up an artist to a literally like unachievable um, standard where that artist, knowing that his entire life or her entire life or their entire life may be um, subject to scrutiny, that their work may be unseen or invalidated because of some personal behavior, uh, you know, do you want, or, or do, do you want we, me to answer that? Is, go is that back, an no, no, I'm, I'm wondering out loud about it. And then, okay. and then given that you could say the same, your point is like, well, the level of, of knowledge that we have now, the, you, you can't unring that bell. We have so much access to information. Well, for, for a lot of artists, uh, including people like Michelangelo and Picasso, 
we have a huge amount of information about their lives and what they are. And once we have that information, should we then say, yeah, I'm not going to go see this. I'm not going to look at that. I'm not going to do this. I'm not interested. That work is no longer valuable to me because of this. And then that leaves very few people. That leaves it. That leaves only superhuman artists left who are, are, you know, infallible in the, in the view of the majority. Okay. Let me respond to that because I don't think it's about infallibility. What I will say is this, I think we, we're at a place in history where we're holding artists to the same level of relationship as we hold the people in our lives to the same level of, of scrutiny. It's not in, I don't expect my partner or my friend or my daughter to be perfect. I accept they make mistakes. I don't expect them to be infallible and I don't expect my artists to be infallible, but just as in a relationship, there are things that are not acceptable. There are things that I won't allow in my relationship. If, if my wife is a, is a racist, if my best friend decides to become a Jew hater, I'm no longer going to be in a relationship. I can't be in a relationship with those people. So in terms of my art, my appreciation of art, I can look at a Picasso and I can say, for a man of his time, he had failings. And some of those failings, I, you know, I, I, don't, I, I don't approve of, but they're not deal breakers for me in looking at his art because there's a context and there's a historical time to that. Um, but I can look at another person and like the Woody Allen stuff, the accusations against him are of a nature that are, that behavior is unacceptable to me, right? It's just unacceptable. It's it's unacceptable and it's recent for me. So like any relationship I have, I weigh all the factors, all the context, all the experiences and say like, is this person human? Did they make a mistake? And here's the other piece. If you're in a relationship with a friend or a partner, right? And if your partner has made a mistake, it's like you said, how do they respond? Are they saying, wow, they, do they acknowledge their mistake and they say, I want to be better? Well, if a person is willing to do that, then that's that's beautiful. I think everybody deserves an opportunity to grow. But the point with the Woody Allen is, just to harp on Woody Allen, he's never he's never said I did anything wrong. In fact, he says I did nothing wrong. And he says the people who accuse me are all whatever he says. He He's not contrite. So... And, and, and the issues with like a Picasso is we don't, we don't know if, and this is part of the problem. This is why it's complex. This is why it's not simple. But with a Picasso, we don't know if Picasso existed today and had today's influences and today's understandings, if he might grow as a human being. So I think it's easier. This is to the point of question I was asking earlier. I think it's easier to excuse the behavior of someone a hundred years ago or 200 years ago, because we don't know how they would have responded mm -hmm. to the modern world. The world mm -hmm. is different. Our views are different. Yeah. The behaviors that we find abhorrent today used to be considered normal. That's not a good or bad. That's just reality. They, they just were normal. So it's, it's easier to look at art from a period before we were alive and we didn't know people and say, like, I, I understand that was the, the behavior of the time. The problem for today's artists is that I know if they think their bad behavior was bad or not. If the, if the values they espouse when they were 18, they continue to espouse when they're 35, or if they say, well, I'm sorry, but they do it in that show businessy way and not in a real way, then I, in my relationship with them, I say like, oh no, that's not okay. I can't be in that relationship. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. I, I love everything that you're saying. I struggle with it. Yeah, I struggle with it. But, but like, I won't, I won't go see a Roman. I won't. I won't watch Chinatown again. I oh, because of Roman Polanski. Yes. But did Roman Polanski direct Chinatown? Yeah. 
you know, Crispin Glover's father, just to yes, hark back to the podcast from last week about high school, uh, was in that movie. Yes, Sad for him. Yeah, no, I hear you. Roman, I, I mean, uh, yeah. I mean Roman, Roman Polanski drugged and anally raped a child and then fled the country to avoid being prosecuted for it and remains out of the country and is being protected. Yeah. And is yeah, like, five, yeah. Five yeah. decades later. Yeah, fuck it. No. Right. I mean, that's exactly, that's exactly the point. Like, again, I don't, so I, so I just want to say it again. I don't think artists have to be infallible. I accept their humanity, just like I accept any friend or lover or child's humanity or person's humanity. But the question again, is just like everyone else. How do you respond when you've made a mistake or when you've grown up being taught a certain way of thinking about the world? That's fucked. That's wrong. That's unhealthy. That's dangerous to other people. You know, there are a lot of people who grew up in the in in America race being taught by their parents and their community to be racist. Right. So you can't blame a child for growing up in a family full of racists who taught him about racism. But when he gets to a certain age and he goes out into the world, does he does he interact with people of color and say, well, maybe I need to rethink this. Maybe the way I was taught is not supported by the experience I'm having in the world. I mean, so that that's possible. I mean, maybe it's not common, but but I, the point is, it's not about fallibility. It's about growth and and listening, and and being able to change to grow. That's to me what it's about. But yeah, I think again for the people in our lives that we've come, we admired growing up, who are still in it and they're not contrite and who've not apologized and who don't think they did anything wrong. Uh, you know, I don't want to. I just want to say, fuck them. I don't want to be in a relationship with them. Yeah, I, it, it it remains a struggle for me. It remains a struggle for me. It's a very very tricky because you could you could apply that to 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 a myriad of. I mean, you could say that same thing about athletes. You know, yeah, I'm not going to watch that team play because one of those players is you know uh, beat his wife. And so, well, so yeah. to be in relation, I don't want to be in relationship with that player by watching him play. And that means I'm just not going to watch that team play because they aren't doing anything about it. They're let, yeah. letting him play. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's, um, I think that's completely reasonable. I think it is reasonable. I'm just saying it, it, it's pretty complicated stuff. Well, it, it is complicated on one level, but, I, but I would argue in contrast, it's not complicated on another level, just like in a relationship. If someone you're in a relationship with does something horrible and you don't agree with it, your values don't support it, and they continue to say, well, fuck you, this is who I am, I don't want to be in a relationship with that person. On the other hand, if that person who beat his wife also grew I mean, we know this as therapists, if that, that kid grew up being beaten or saw abuse and then continued that behavior and has never had any intervention and decides after doing it by all the backlash, he's like, well, maybe this is not okay and goes to get help and goes to therapy and goes to seek out growth. I think that that's good. That's a good move. So I wouldn't say let's not watch that player ever again. If that player decides that his mm -hmm. behavior right. was not okay, that's how you grow. Right. And again, no child, I used to say this all the time, but no five-year-old sits down before bed at night to pray and says, God, I hope to grow up to be a wife beater or God, I hope to grow up to be, you know, a racist. I don't think any little child has that in them. When they're little, they learn. Those are learned behaviors from family, from culture. Yeah. So they can be they can be unlearned, and that's why I think people deserve a second chance, but only if they're willing to take the actual steps to grow. I mean, in the PR bullshit world we live in, so often it's a publicist writes the the apology, the athlete or the 
famous the celebrity or the actor goes on, uh, repeats the apology, and the behavior doesn't change. And everybody knows it doesn't change. That's a different thing. And I think the, that's reasonable to hold those people accountable to their team or their company. Or, you know, if you work at a company and your boss is abusive, but he does his work really well, I mean, in terms of the actual work, work, the paperwork, whatever, but he's abusive to his employees and he thinks that's an okay way to treat people. I don't want to be in relate. I think that boss should be fired. I think he should lose that job. And I'm not, and I don't care that, you know, he may also like, be nice to people in other ways. Like that's not an acceptable behavior in a culture, in a society, in a company. So I think these are all relationship questions at their core. And I think it's, I just think we never, we didn't think about art in that way because we just didn't know. And we weren't, we didn't, hadn't grown to the level as a people, as a culture to question. That's my thought. Yeah. Well, yeah. So back to movie, back to Manhattan, for example, you know, Please. well, it, it makes me sad because it's a pretty beautiful yeah. movie. In almost every way. It's just it that my relationship to Woody Allen has changed because my relation my relationship to his art has changed because my relationship, what I think of as my relationship to him has changed. Yeah, to me, the Woody Allen thing feels a lot like a death. Mm-hmm. It's like there's grief, uh, there's loss and grief associated with it. Because as I said before, it was so formative. It was so impactful for me and for you and for most of people, I think men, especially of our generation, his humor was foundational yeah you know the jokes and the references that you and i continued to make in our 20s and 30s and 40s those things were just part of us they were they fused into our being yeah but it's like a lot i think it's like i I think a lot of it's like a like a death it's akin to death and grief yeah you know very very much so very very much so and it, it is hard and it is sad you know it's sad because you know, to rethink the whole way I engage in humor in some level. Yeah. So, all right. So that leads me to the big question of the week, uh, which is this. This is about your own experience. And and it leads to next week's episode where we're going to be talking about our fathers and our experience with our fathers, which is going to be a very emotional, potentially very emotional and very problematic conversation, very difficult conversation, maybe for both of us in, in different ways, um, because we had very different fathers, obviously. Um, but both of them caused us pain in very profound ways. And I, I and I, I'm guessing before I ask the big question that you don't think of my father necessarily as someone who caused me a lot of pain. It's not usually how I think about right because dad. he was because my father was a very decent guy. He was kind. He was generous. He was he was a good guy in in a lot of ways that your father wasn't. Is that fair? In specific ways, it's completely fair. I I, okay. I understand your dad. I understand how your dad um, sort of paved the way for pain, for the kind of pain that I know that you experienced as a child. Um, you know, um, it wasn't intentional. I, it was. Never. It was not intentional. I understand how that is the difference. You know, his, the you know, the absence of boundaries and 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 other things that I'm sure you'll talk about next week. Um, you know, ended up contributing to that stuff. And so if that's what you mean by your dad caused you pain. Well, there are a few other, let let me ask the big question because my answer to the big question will illuminate this a little bit and be a precursor to next week's show. Um, So what, to pick out one thing, okay, one thing, one event that happened 
one interaction one, that happened between you and your father that significantly impacted or shifted your life in in a, in a meaningful, in a powerful or unexpected way? Like one event that happened or that something he did that really shifted your your life. Do you do you understand the question? Yeah, yeah, I do. I'm trying to trying to think of one event. Go ahead. Yeah. You, you you tell me what your one event is, and then okay. I'll think about mine. Well, I mean, this is something that happened when I was 29, not when I was a kid. But uh, my father was convicted of uh, of like a tax, a small tax fraud in his business, and went to prison for 10 months. And uh, that, and when I was 29, I was I was married. I had a baby, uh, had a business, uh, and it it sort of cut the legs out from under me in a in a way that. I didn't really see at the time. I mean, I did sort of because within six months of my father going to prison, I quit my business, got divorced. And soon after that, I think, no, it wasn't soon after that. I quit my business, got divorced. Yeah. And then it was just kind of like out there in the world alone in a way that I had always sort of felt. But that at 29, when I thought like I had sort of figured a few things out, although I hadn't, but I thought I had like family and work and I thought I was sort of on a path, it really just just rip, ripped me apart. And I, I could barely function after that for a while in some ways. I mean, I didn't, not everybody saw that because I hid it as I was wont to do, but it, it destroyed me in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. The level of shame that it, it brought to me was, you know, overwhelming. Mm-hmm. So that, that mm-hmm. little thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember, I remember that time. I remember when you went to visit him, but, it, but it, it was, it was seismic for you. But you, the question that you asked me was that it created a significant shift for you. His going to prison didn't lead to your divorce or lead to your losing your business, right? Well, what, what is the shift? Yeah. What is the shift well, I, that it created for you? I don't know if I would completely agree with you that it didn't lead to that. It, it, it. My father, up to that point, was really the only sense of family and stability that I had, it was tenuous, but it was the, it was, it it provided me a sense of stability Mm -hmm. and safety a little bit Mm -hmm. in the, as an adult. And it was, it literally was pulled out from under me. It was like, you know, safety net's gone. And he, it was just gone Mm -hmm. and it was, it was dramatic and it was quick and it came out of nowhere. I didn't know this was happening until it ended, until it happened. My father apparently had been negotiating with the U S attorney to, to have no jail time and pay a fine, like which is for her first offense and the little, it was a couple hundred thousand dollars of tax evasion. It was a small amount relative to the Madoffs and and the other stuff going on at the time. I mean, so he had been negotiating and do, dealing with this for almost two years, and I, I had no idea. But I mean, I didn't know any of it. And then all of a sudden, he says he he calls me and he says, "This is what's happening," and I'm supposed to not go to jail. And then he went to a court hearing. And the judge who has the ability to overrule the deal that the U.S. attorney negotiated for two years with my father and his partner didn't like something that morning and just said, no, you guys are going to jail for a year. I mean, he was supposed to not go to jail at all. There was no jail time in their deal. And then two days later, he was going to jail. Mm-hmm. So that, I mean, that it, 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 it you know, coming from the, the where we grew up, that to me, you know, and I already felt like it didn't really belong because we didn't have the kind of money everybody had and all the rest of that. That was a level of shame that just had me retreating. I mean, I think it did lead to my marriage breaking up and to my quitting my business. I just couldn't be in the world in those ways anymore. Hmm. And I stopped being in the world for a year. I spent the next three years taking Mariana to the park 
and being in a mall. I was a stay at home. And you're like, I, that was it that I retreated from the world. So I would mm. say it was pretty dramatic. Mm. I see. I see. Yeah. The, so the, the shift was just led, led to this retreat from the world. Yeah. Which, mm. which was a problem mm-hmm. because it, it, it exacerbated the other problems that I thought I had already, that I thought I had been dealing with in terms of my sense of safety and security in the world and feelings. Okay. And having a relationship and a business and all that stuff. And it just literally like cut the floor out from anyway. And I fell through the floor. Right. It took me a decade and a half really until graduate school in my forties to sort of deal with some of that stuff. Yeah. So yeah. Powerful. Yeah. Very. You know, it's interesting as I'm, as I'm thinking about the question myself, um, <laughs> I've done so much work on, on this stuff uh, <laughs> yeah. in the last couple of years. I mean, I went back into therapy. It was short lived, but it was, it was powerful after, mm-hmm. after my dad died. Um, and um, uh, went back into therapy with Lynn Rosen. Lynn was really, really helpful to me. We did great some, therapist. Great therapist. She did some EMDR with me that was really powerful. And I don't have the same. I mean, I was really wrecked in a way that I didn't quite anticipate after my dad died. And I didn't. I don't have the same. I had a lot of anger and a lot of sadness. I don't. Mm-hmm. I don't really have that so much anymore. I'm happy to say. Um, yeah. And when I think back to one event that it's hard for me right now to think of it. And just because I don't have the sadness and the anger doesn't mean that the, the memories are erased and I can't mm-hmm. remember them. You know, I left Brandeis, but it was, it was a cumul- you know, my the university where I was attending I, after two years, I left, you know, that was a very pivotal, um, um, sh- shift. It wasn't because of one moment, though, or one thing. Mm-hmm. That was just it was cumulative. That was a cumulative thing, and that was sort of the the uh, the result of a long lot of and long time um, of my dad trying to control me and saying you're going to do what I say because of my money. Right. Well, I mean, it's interesting you brought that up because when I was thinking about the question, the the thing that that came to my mind when I was thinking about you and your history with your dad was that time right after that, when you went to Berkeley and then you quit, you decided not to go to Cal Berkeley and work in the restaurant, not take your dad's money because he just wouldn't let you make your own decisions. Right. Well, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. I'm saying, but to me, you thought of exactly the same moment. Is, is yeah, I did oh, actually. Yeah, 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 I wrote yeah. it down, but, but I understand it was cumulative, but, I, but, it, but to me, it does speak. It, it, the, the, what cumulative leads to a trigger. It leads to an event. Yes. Right. What, so the, what, event yes, was, the event was you, yeah, but you said, is there one one memory that I thought what you meant was? But that is the event. If what you're asking is like with the event, it, it's that event. It was leaving the the private university I was at, going and getting a job in a restaurant, paying for my own education, right. living in that tiny tiny living apartment studio, with the, living in the studio closet above you, uh-huh. right? Exactly. And I I I cry. That was I cried almost every day for about a year. I was profoundly yeah. depressed at that time. Yeah, I remember how depressed you looked. I, I was mean, just it was a, that was bad. That was a bad, bad year for me. But I will say, even within that bad year, you still you got a job, you know, a kind of job you never had before. You worked your ass off at that job. Yeah, I got and two then jobs. The job that followed it. Yeah, I was gonna say, and then the other job at the breakfast place. The breakfast place I got first, right? And then I moved from the breakfast place the Fog City Diner. to the Fog City Diner. Is that still there? 
No, I think I actually I looked. I think it's it's been only been gone for a couple of years though. It was there for a very long time. I remember liking the chili, <laughs> but anyway, I digress. Um, <laughs> and that breakfast place had really good stuff too. It was cute. It was, it was up great. that little. It was like up a hill to get to the entrance. I remember. Yeah, it was like on the. You know, it was nice. But anyway, my point was that you pivoted and you were able to sort of do something different and work through that and then go to Berkeley in the fall. And that was. It's very impressive. I mean, I didn't tell you at the time because I didn't really understand it at the time because I was living in a cloud at the time, and I apologize for that um, to you. But it was very impressive that you were able to do that considering, you know, the past and your experience. That was that was courageous, I thought. Yeah. I, I mean, looking back on it, thank you for saying that. I, I think it was pretty courageous. Um, yeah. It, it caused a huge amount of friction too. In, I mean, on, on, in my relationship with my dad, I mean, I basically didn't speak to him after that. Yeah. Let's, let's table that right now. Cause we're going to pick it up in next week's episode. Cause yeah. I think it, it's worth, it, it does deserve more time. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a lot of elements to that that are really interesting in terms of just understanding relationships and, and understanding oneself. Like there it's very powerful stuff. So I look forward to that conversation. I look forward to that too, Kenny. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> I just feel like laughing. I so on the last note, I am getting my first vaccination for the virus tomorrow morning. Mm-hmm. So by the time this airs, it will have been eight days since I got a vaccination. Uh, I, I have to say, I'm a little scared. Really? I'm scared of the side effects. I'm scared of 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 chills I, i'm just a little scared i haven't gotten a shot in decades and i'm just a little scared i don't I, your first vaccine i i don't think is gonna um incite that kind of uh reaction i think you'll probably just have a sore arm but if you are but before your second but if before your second vaccine if you're still feeling scared call me Remember, remember those words. If tomorrow you get a call from somebody because you're my my person, my emergency contact, that I died from the vaccine. Okay. Remember, you said, "Oh, it's no big deal. Don't worry about it." Yeah. <laughs> Just remember those words. And when you tell no, my did, daughter that I'm it, dead, but I didn't say it's no big deal. Don't worry about it. I said that's I, what you said. I basically, said, uh, uh, it's what I said. Basically, there's a difference. <laughs> I said I think all you're going to have is a sore arm. All right. All right. Go. Um, what, don't you have to pick up Dolly, or is she not? Well, in I do have to pick up Dolly. She's actually not in school today, but you know. She did I tell you she had this really big reaction last Monday about not being able to spend time with me? Yeah, yeah. Did. So I promised her after lunch I'd go pick her up. Where is she? It's at her friend's house. She's at the Russian uh, princess's house. Princess's yeah. house, um, playing with the the jewels from the the pre uh, yeah. revolution day pre revolutionary days. Yeah, that's nice. I like that. Anastasia, mm-hmm. very nice. All right, I'll talk to you later. All right, bye. bye. Locks in the Bagel is a production of Kenjamin Media, a curated series of conversations about things that matter. For more information about our podcast, please go to KenjaminMedia.com.